Hey, listeners. Today's episode features mature content. If that's not your thing or you have kids around, why don't you skip today's episode? From Rixie, this is Frameform, a show about movies, moving, and everything in between. I'm Hannah Weber. I'm Jen Ray. And I'm Claire Schweitzer. Hello. Welcome, everyone. It's another day in the week, and you came here to listen to us. And guess what? We have a guest on today. We're going to be talking about dance scenes in movies, so dance in film. So if you like movies that are narrative that are maybe not dance, screen dance films, like this is the episode for you. Um, So today we have my friend colleague from graduate school, Nathan Skoll. Nathan. Hi. Welcome, Nathan. Hello, Nathan. Welcome to the podcast. I'd say thank you. Thank you for having me. I'd say hello in a variety of languages. Uh, If I knew where we were most popular. (laughs) Uh, We are definitely (laughs) charting in Brazil at the top. Bonjour. Mm-hmm. Is that just hola then in Brazil? I know that's Spanish, but is it hey? Oh, bom dia. Bom dia, oi, tudo bom, tudo bem. Bom dia, hey. I know Bailar Funk because that was a dance music movement. <laughs> I know dance music. Okay, so what's up, Brazil? Yes. I have a Brazilian CD in my <laughs> CD player right here, I believe. So even if I don't speak Portuguese. The fact you even have a CD player is pretty amazing to me. I'm weird. <laughs> Nathan has a very big CD collection. An embarrassingly large CD collection and DVD. And I have a CD player. <laughs> I have one too, but I also have a VHS player. Like, I like the old media. Yeah, my VCR hasn't been plugged in in years, but I do have it in case. And I have an embarrassing amount of uh, analog media because I like it. And uh, I need it oftentimes because... A lot of stuff I want to see is not streaming or otherwise easily available. So, anywho, uh, hello to Brazil and wherever else then. So, Nathan, why don't you introduce yourself? I mean, we're so happy to have you here. So, okay, I'm happy to be here. I did an undergrad in film. I grew up in Los Angeles and just immersed in the film industry and, you know, cable TV basically became a thing right as I was becoming a thing. And I couldn't care less about sports uh, in a lot of ways. So I watched, uh, you know, I got very familiar with film by watching cable and seeing all the movie billboards around town and living by studios and so forth. So I majored in film as an undergrad and then wanted to be a film professor. So did a master's at San Francisco State. And I knew from my research, I was going to have to spend a lot of time with a few movies and go deep. So I'm like, well, I should probably watch stuff that I already like, which was dance movies. Because, you know, as I as I said, actually, I didn't even necessarily make this connection, but there was this channel called Z Channel, which was a local cable station. It was a premium, but it was like really artsy and for like cinephiles. And they would show screeners sometimes. So I remember they showed a screener for award consideration of Dirty Dancing while it was still in the theater and we videotaped it. So I watched, we watched Dirty Dancing all the time because it's like, ooh, we own this movie that's still in the theater. 
So that gave me a hankering for dirty dancing. And then I went to BYU, Brigham Young University, for my undergrad, which is in Provo, Utah, which is where they filmed Footloose. And Footloose, in case you haven't seen it, is all about a kid who's like a city kid who winds up in uh, a small, religiously, you know, oppressive town. Well, I was feeling that a lot and started going dancing a lot to have a better time and break the monotony. So Footloose, I didn't see Footloose all the way through till I was a college freshman, but it really spoke to me. So when it came time to pick my research to, to do my thesis for my master's, I was like, I should do dance movies. And here we are now. So I did that for my master's thesis. And then that's been my doctoral dissertation as well as expanding that. And I am almost done with that. I defend. I have some final revisions to do over the next 48 hours. And then I'm pretty much done with the main part of it after a long time. And I know Hannah, because I hated said PhD program at first. And I was like, I'm not going to do this for five to seven years if it's going to be this annoying and pointless. So what are my options? And I was like, well, they have an MFA program and I can do that pretty easily and pretty quickly. So let me apply to the film MFA. And if I get in and still hate my PhD, I'll just switch. And if I get in and stop hating my PhD, let me see if I can get the PhD to pay for most of the MFA. And that's how it ended up uh, working out. And uh, because of the dance movie academic research, I did my MFA portfolio work on dance movies. So I made a video essay about dance movies in my research, and then I made a little dance movie of my own and hope to expand that into a feature at some point. But first things first, you know, but that's the gist. And that is all to say I have thought very deeply about dance in popular movies you know, globally to an extent, but especially as far as the Hollywood industry or Hollywood adjacent industry. So something like Strictly Ballroom is, for all intents and purposes, a dance movie in the Hollywood sense. So it's Australian, but that's the type of movie that I spend a lot of time with. But, you know, in researching and amassing it and thinking about it and contextualizing it, I've certainly, like when Hannah and I spoke about what we might want to discuss on this show, I was like, well, this, 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 and this do this and these movies, even though they're not dance and so on. So I should, I hope, have good things to say, and I'll shut up now and be a respondent rather than a chatterbox. Well, before we get into the three films that we picked for today. I'm just wondering if you have one film that is your absolute favorite or something that you love to hate. Yeah. Dance movies, I'll say this. Now that I'm several years into and kind of in the home stretch of the main work, because I'll probably revisit this, you know, the idea is that the dissertation will be a book and then from there I'll be the dance movie scholar, you know. So I'll probably revisit it down the road. But for all intents and purposes, having done the broad overview now. I will say the movie that most impressed me, the more work I did with it, was, of all things, Stomp the Yard. Okay. Um, which I wouldn't have anticipated. I wouldn't <laughs> have anticipated that. Because, you know, I saw it when it came out and I was like, yeah, it was fine, but whatever. It's intricate, though. It's very intricate, and it, it's got a little too much going on. But most of it works, and it's really uh, inspirational in some ways. So I'll give you a brief overview. I mean, you basically have two big cycles of dance movies. You have the one from Saturday Night Fever to 
Dirty Dancing, and Hairspray. Then you have a few scattered ones in between. And then you have basically Center Stage and Bring It On till the present, which I would include, like, Work It. But, you know, they they become more and more woke, so to speak. And unfortunately, you look back at something like Hairspray or Dirty Dancing, which are great, but their racial politics are a little dicey, even if their heart's in the right place. They're not as bad as something like Flashdance, where she's basically just like stealing breakdance moves and getting her own success out of it. Okay, by Hairspray, you have kind of more fusion, but it's still centered around a white character. And then you have... Movies like Bring It On, which are kind of a response to that, and it's white guilt, but it's still focusing white issues. And one thing I really liked about Stomp the Yard is it's insular. It's all about their own experience. It's not about, it's about navigating modern America as as a black male uh, and a black scholar and a black dancer in a lot of ways, but it trusts its own convictions and doesn't have to try and make it ostensibly more palatable to white viewers or assume that no one will want to pay attention if it's not centered on a white character. So that's one reason I really like Stomp the Yard uh, this time. I will always love Dirty Dancing and Footloose for the reasons I already discussed. Um, I think the best movie uh, from a cinematic standpoint is probably Saturday Night Fever, but I'm a sucker for the 70s movies. And I don't enjoy watching Saturday Night Fever past the first hour. Um, but as far as how it's made, what it's doing, I think there's a lot going on there that's pretty interesting. Guilty Pleasures. I don't even take a lot of pleasure in it. I think Black Swan's really lame overall. So yeah, maybe a longer answer than you wanted. Sorry, I'm I'm chatty. <laughs> oh, all good. I love it. I'll say this too. Uh, Fish Tank, I recently rewatched and a lot of people wouldn't think, oh, Fish Tank's a dance movie. I think it's a dance movie and fish tank is like, I liked it a lot when I first saw it and I watched it again recently. I was like, Oh my gosh, fish tank is like so good. So fish tank and stomp the yard. Yeah. Uh, and even when you mentioned dirty dancing, I mean, something that we talked about on this season of the podcast is like gender and age appropriateness and youth culture and all of these different intersections with dance. And I think that's something really interesting that, as soon as you have a, a movie that's about dance, there's all these other layers to it. So definitely, as you as you mentioned with race, is is definitely something that we see where we look back and we cringe. And when we get these good examples, we really want to highlight them. So hopefully today we'll get some examples of movies that are uh, not dance movies specifically, but use dance in a way that is creative or have some, some depth or uh, some sort of informed perspective that the three of us as as dance cinephiles or as dance people and film people uh, noticed and said, okay, this is something that needs to be uh, pulled out and recognized and, and unpacked a little bit. I just wanted to um, make a little cheeky aside about dirty dancing. Um, I actually went to Mount Holyoke and like, there's a line in there where like the mother says, Oh, baby's going to Mount Holyoke in the fall. And so every year for the incoming freshman class like they play that movie so i've watched that movie at least once every year (laughs) nice very cool well we have three movies that we're going to discuss today even though there's like a wide variety that we kind of just lightly covered here but today we're going to start with uh the big lebowski coen brothers flick 
Uh, that is a 1998 film. And um, this scene is the quintessential gutter ball scene starring the dude and Maude Lebowski. Now, we can't go any iconic with this film. I mean, with its Bugsy, Bugsby Berkeley styling and, I mean, the dude just kind of dancing, looking... I don't know. He's just a funny kind of guy in this scene. And I love the moment where he's playing the bowling ball underneath the lady's skirts. And then he turns up looking underneath the skirts there. and Which they pranked him. I don't know if you knew that. But some of the dancers were not wearing underwear. <laughs> I thought some of them weren't wearing underwear or had like put on prosthetic hair or something to like... So I heard they definitely were wearing underwear. Um, Jeff Bridges was on Conan and he said that they, the, the second part of what you said is what was what I heard, that they stuffed like fake hair from the costume department to make some pretty uh, lush, protective <laughs> overgrowth. And to top, to top off the awkwardness. So in that way, like the dancers have the last laugh because I mean, I'm going to get into this later on this scene. I can't imagine what it would be like to be like, oh, I finally got into a movie. Yeah, my role is someone looks at my skirt. Oh, gosh. (laughs) Like, what a great big break. Like, what a big break. Tell your family about it. But it's such a great reaction shot, too, for Jeff Bridges. I mean, his eyeballs are like, they look like they're about to pop out of his sockets there. I mean, he literally looks like he's just like in a craze of something. (laughs) Well, it's is part of the humor with this scene because, like, definitely referring to Busby Berkeley, like, there's ways that you can refer to his work. You can refer to it on a, a technical level where you're seeing these overhead shots, these geometric shapes, or these ripple effects. But you can also refer to it with like that gaudy camp and like the overacting in his face. It totally reminds me of the facial expressions you see. Like this scene in particular is um, referring to 42nd Street and Dames and just these these classic films that when you put them in a more contemporary context, you can see just how goofy it really is. Yeah. And I think it's worth noting that the, you know, the Coen brothers have such a, um, I mean, their work is just so rangy, like as far as like the types of stories that they tell and like, you know, my, my two, you know, two favorite movies are two very, very different movies of theirs. But it, they are also very, you know, much classic Hollywood nerds. Like you can probably see in something like Hail Caesar. Like they have like such a incredible knowledge and um, some like, sort of like a winking eye reverence to it in a way. In that, okay, yeah, this was completely ridiculous, but look what came out of it as well. So, what do you guys think of what the function of the dance scene is? Well, I think a lot of times when you see dance in a movie that is not a dance movie it's to show some sort of sense like heightened reality or something that's surreal like a heightened experience or emotion or a dream sequence and I think this is you know obviously like a a dream sequence or a fantasy and I think that it's really interesting how that's just on a surface level but on another level this is really like a non-dancer's perspective into dance like it's objectifying oh, look, they all have the same body type and they look so picture perfect. And it's just, it it's kind of ridiculous and perpetuates this like narrow standard. 
and is very much an outsider's look at what a dance scene might be in a movie versus some of our later examples today, I think, are more um, personal and artistic and actually integrate it in a better way. But that's kind of where the comedy of the scene really comes from. Yeah, I think I agree with everything she said. And this gets into some broader theory, and I'll keep it brief. I don't want to be like, you know, tweed jacket film nerd. But as far as the musical itself, and I argue that, you know, dance movies, even though they predate musicals, because you could have dancing before you could have sync sound and dance numbers, a lot of the conventions are borrowed from musicals. And there's definitely a function in musicals between real world and dream world stuff. And academics, especially Rick Altman, uh, and a lot of the scholars who have worked so extensively analyzing the Hollywood musical, talk about the split between the dream world and the real world. And the musical numbers supplant the real world. They are the dream world, and ultimately, you know, Hollywood musicals become these utopian environments where the utopia and the dream wins out. So it's a shorthand and a shortcut in a postmodern pastiche that the Coen brothers are doing, yes. In that scene, especially, it is a literal dream sequence, and it's making it more dreamy. And of course, there's been a dream sequence prior to this in the movie where he's been punched out, and he's on a magic carpet ride flying over L.A. And there's another dance sequence in this where, as you said, it's definitely somebody who doesn't dance but knows dance in movies is going through. And a non-dancer is going to look at a performance dance piece such as his landlord does that they go to see where it's, you know, the the guy's in like the onesie with like laurels in his hair and it's Euripides or whatever. You know, that's somebody who doesn't know what interpretive dance uh, or would conflate performance art and interpretive dance as kind of one and the same and inherently laughable. So it is definitely doing it from the non-dancer's perspective. But, you know, as somebody from L.A., I can say that's also a very L.A. element is that everybody that they have as landlord being like, hey, I'm doing my cycle this week. Can you come support it? That's a very L.A. thing. And um, Big Lebowski is a very quintessentially L.A. movie. So that, uh, you know, and you do meet aspiring dancers, actors, sometimes one in the same, you know, so... It, it adds in that level. But from its purely cinematic point with gutter balls, you know, you're checking off a lot of different boxes. And I'd add just as a quick aside too, you know, Saturday Night Fever is very much a 70s movie. It happens to be a dance movie as well. But one thing that is notable about it is that it overlaps a lot of different genres in ways subsequent dance movies would. And pornography was very mainstream at the time. And what people don't realize about... Saturday Night Fever is it's such a gritty, like gross movie in a lot yeah. of ways. Oh, yeah. Because most people just think, oh, disco, fun, John Travolta, white suit. No, disco, not disco, got some stuff going on. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I mean, disco is a whole other can of worms that's fascinating. But what I'm going for with the Big Lebowski thing is you got to understand this is also in the context gutter balls, you know. This is referring to Logjam and the actual porn snippet that you see earlier in the movie. And it ties into this porn underbelly as well. So that uh, and one thing that modern musicals, uh, at least starting with Cabaret, um, but more and more in the 80s and beyond is rather than real world dream world, oftentimes it's real world nightmare world. So it's very modern in that sensibility because it's and very postmodern because it's going for the dream world thing, but by having this undercurrent of Saddam 
Hussein showing up in the thing as well. And, you know, the Wagnerian stuff where she's dressed as like Lady Godiva and stuff, and that's triggering some anti-Semitic stuff. So it's it's really playing with, as is very typical of what they do, as you pointed out, you know, it's playing with a lot of classic studio era Hollywood movie iconography and recontextualizing it. Uh, and sometimes it's not even for a, a highfalutin purpose. If they were listening to this, they'd kind of be mocking probably the pretense that we bring to this. If you have read uh, any interviews with the Coen brothers, they mock a lot of this type of stuff. So that doesn't mean we're wrong to say it or incorrect in our assessments, but. Totally. And then the ending is just, I mean, definitely puts it into nightmare territory. I won't spoil it for anybody, but uh, definitely you think you understand where the scene's going and then it definitely surprises you at the end. And I think that, you know, just, touching on those elements you talked about of using, you know, iconography from popular culture. I think that the fact this is so easily digestible and recognizable and even people that don't know dance can recognize these visuals is like, oh, that kind of looks like a vintage musical that contributes to the the fandom and the popularity of it. And, you know, connecting this dance movie or this non-dance movie that uses dance to one of the dance movies we mentioned, like, Dirty Dancing, this also has a, a cult following and there's like a Lebowski Fest convention that actually happens every year. Probably not this year because of COVID, but it's just crazy how dance kind of amplifies these movies and makes them so memorable. Well, and I, I should add too, and it just occurred to me, you know, even the Hotel California scene is a great example because you have the Gypsy Kings singing Hotel California in Spanish or some dialect of like Roma language and putting that spin on it as John Turturro dances in slow motion after his, you know, strike and things. And I got to add to not to be such a chatterbox, but just, you know, one of the other big genres, I'm not gonna say all dance movies overlap with pornography, uh, but there's an ingredient in flash dance and dirty dancing and a lot of the earlier ones, certainly, uh, that has kind of that underbelly. But overall, dance movies consistently overlap with sports movies. And Big Lebowski is conflating the two. And I'd never even thought about that before. But I think that's one reason that scene works too and is so memorable is because of the dance element. Because he is, you know, doing his little jig to the song after he rolls the strike and he's in the weird purple outfit and so forth. So dance and bowling. And I mean, again, with like, the Bugsy Berkeley, I mean, they're the bowling pins. They're set up in a way like bowling pins, you know, very formational, uh, symmetrical, and even. So, yeah, dance and sports. <laughs> Though, correct me if I'm wrong, is the dude ever actually seen bowling in the movie? No. Right. So this is actually... This, to me, adds to the, the fantasy sequence, to this you know, Busby Berkeley-esque sequence as well, because him with Maud doing that bowling motion is the closest thing he does to actually bowling a ball in that movie. And I think it speaks to the level of, you know, trying to live in sort of like this idea of a world rather than actually like being a part of it or something, kind of like embodying the fantasy of a space without actually being a real part of it. You could say this scene really ties the movie together. <laughs> well played. <laughs> we can just wrap here. You're not going to get Thank a better you. line than that. Hold for so. applause. <laughs> I agree. Let's let's jump into our next movie pick of the episode. Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion, uh, directed by David Merkin. Uh, this is 1997. 
And we're specifically talking about the last iconic scene where Sandy and Michelle and Romy, they get together and they have their dance at the high school reunion to show everyone off. Now, how does this scene seal the deal you know, like everyone thinks that this is like the scene that like kind of resolves everything. My question is like, why? <laughs> I, I think that dance is this doesn't have that barrier to it. Like someone could design an outfit and have models wear it. And that could be a form of their expression or they could make a film or they can make a painting, these external things. But when you're dancing, it's you. So when you really rock a dance or when you when you perform that choreography or do that improv, that is absolutely you and your spirit and your body and your ideas. And I think this is just the ultimate uh, vengeance scene. But, you know, this is just this idea of vengeance and they're not doing it in this violent way. They're just showing like we can be elegant. We can wear our outfits that were approved by our Vogue editor friend and we're going to be so coordinated and graceful and just we need no words I think it's such a great scene I absolutely love this yeah I agree I love this scene uh, just because of how ridiculous it is I think it just proves to everyone that they can be better they are they are better than who they were and at the same time though I get very confused like oh okay like Sandy gets Michelle in some kind of way and where did this all come from? And they say that they those dance dancing at the club was, you know, a good idea. Like, and it's like, oh, the joke is, is like all those nights dancing at the club or going to clubs every night really paid off, Michelle. Yeah. Like. Yeah, exactly. It's like, oh, wow. It's like, what kind of club are they going to? You know, I love the quote. Um, I think Merkin was interviewed about the film and he said that the scene works because it's not over the top perfect, but it has a level of skill that's hilarious. So it's one thing if like dancers, are, if, you know, we have non-dancers who are just like sort of, you know, doing their interpretation of dance, but like they're, I mean, the performers are very, you know, Mira Servino actually had some ballet training and, you know, Lisa Kudrow wasn't a dancer, but still, like, and I mean, Alan Cumming had his, you know, theater work, which, and I also want to give context. Watching the movie for this episode was the first time I ever saw this movie. <laughs> and I watched the dancing before I saw the movie. <laughs> well, with Romy and Michelle, again, we're dealing with a real world versus dream world. And the dream comes true and usurps the real world. Uh, in the narrative leading up to this, in fact, there's been a dream sequence. Because Romeo and Michelle have had their falling out and she gets hit by the limo and she loses her shirt and imagines them old and so forth. Okay, so that whole dream sequence uh, leads up to this dance scene. So it's it's they are kind of already paired up that this is not the real world. And the fact that these people who haven't seen one third of their trio in 10 years can all synchronize perfectly as dancers. I mean, that's that is very Hollywood musical, okay? That people who are supposed to be common everyday people can be such graceful dancers at the drop of the hat and work in such perfect sync. Usually it's adopted to show the couple coming together uh, in a way that words can't do justice to. I mean, that's usually what the song and dance numbers and music uh, musicals are doing anyway. It's 
living the dream world out and showing that the common, you know, average people can magically aspire this to. So it's a lot of wish fulfillment and fantasies. And in the narrative at that sequence, since it's basically a near climax to the whole movie, you're getting, that's like right after Romeo and Michelle reconcile. So you have the dream sequence, the reconciliation, then the dance scene to kind of seal the two together. And that gets them their revenge over everyone else is that they're, you know, coming together as this trio and this unit and in perfect sync. So it's still working on a lot of the same narrative logic of Hollywood musicals and that whole dream world, real world split. Plus, I would say offset with the earlier dancing where you do see them in the club and they're dancing like complete dorks in a wonderful way, because I watched that. I haven't seen Romeo and Michelle in a while, but I, I love it. And I used to watch it a lot. I would laugh a lot at their, because they start in synchro and they're doing this like really lame, mosey, like country western move almost, and then start just freestyling, spazzing out, you know, and the movie's so rooted in the 80s anyway that a lot of 80s movies have these dance sequences shoehorned in because dance movies were so popular. So it's it's still playing along with that, but this is showing that they've gone from these dorks, even though she has the line of like, all those nights of going to clubs every night really paid off or whatever she says. We see what the nights of the club are really like early on. And that offsets how nicely this number comes together with its, you know, with its uh, pirouettes and... Sautés, jetés, <laughs> catch and release. <laughs> I know pas de deux and I know pirouettes and that's why I'm just the guest. <laughs> Well, and something else I appreciate is, uh, as you pointed out, the way this dance sequence fits within the narrative. I found that when I was in film school, the perspective that the film, quote unquote, film people had on dance was that it was just spectacle. It didn't serve any narrative purpose. And even when you have writers like Altman talking about dance in the dream world, you know, he also speaks about the function of dance for character development and character expression and showing very much like these real world traits that anchor us in the story. And with this film, like the same song is used in another scene where, uh, where Michelle, Lisa Kudrow's character, um, you know, offers Romy to dance with her when Romy gets stood up by some guy, you know? So it's like, it echoes back to that earlier scene where if, if you literally didn't see the movie and you only saw those two scenes, you could understand the entire movie and be like, you know, this friend was here for her other friend and then all this stuff happened and we don't know who this nerdy guy is, but <laughs> here they are as a, as a cohesive unit at the end and all is well and everyone else is super jelly. Well, it's interesting, too, that you say, you know, that in film school, you know, it seems like people almost were dismissive of dances. Oh, that's just spectacle. Guess what? Like, you know, because I teach intro to film and, you know, most of my training, I have the production stuff, but a lot of my academic training is just that. It's academic. I have the MA and the, the PhD in which I've been emphasizing the film stuff. And guess what? All movies are an interplay of spectacle and narrative. And, you know, you can't really diminish it because the pleasure of going to movies is both. And, you know, when Hannah and I first talked about the podcast and what you wanted to discuss on here, I was like, you know, it's usually uh, it can be a shortcut and just kind of like going for the jugular for a crowd pleasing thing to have a song and dance number because it jazzes up things, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that. Look at a Marvel movie. Guess what? The action sequences do not really lead to plot usually. 
They are pure spectacle. So, you know, the people who are dismissing, oh, that's just, you know, that's that's not narrative. It's like, guess what? Everything you like, probably also very spectacle driven as well. Well, and just because you don't understand something doesn't mean it's spectacle. Like I can listen to, I don't understand music on a very deep level to the point where I can pick, like my husband's a tap dancer, so he can appreciate music and tap dance in a way that I can't. And it's like, when you understand how the techniques work, that becomes the the art and that becomes, you know, if even though it gives you that wow factor of a spectacle, it can have more of an intellectual um, or an emotional experience to it if you actually understand how these things function. So that's hopefully something we're doing today. So hopefully something we're able to do with conversations like this is say, okay, yes, this is a really funny scene in this movie, but here's actually why it's amazing. So now we're going to segue into our last pick, Burning, which is a 2018 South Korean psychological thriller uh, directed by Lee Chang-dong. And uh, this death sequence, uh, I would say it's not the only one. There's like a, another scene um, with the ma- one of the main actors that is, uh, she's a pantomimer. So every now and then you see her actually move throughout a scene well, with dialogue. And um, she moves really well. I think anyone who listens to the show knows that I'm drawn to... Um, kind of odd things or unconventional things and um that goes for like really odd interesting uses of dance in movies like other i mean other films i mean the two other films that popped into my mind were dog tooth with the weird flash dance sequence and the oscar isaac jamming in ex machina where those were my other two like (laughs) top picks but for this one I mean, first of all, I am a huge, huge, huge Haruki Murakami fan. And um, this is really the first film that's brought, like, really communicated the experience of what reading Murakami is is like to the screen. And the dance scene in particular, um, so, I mean, some, setting up some context for the movie. So the lead character, um, or I suppose we're calling him the lead character, Jong-soo, uh, runs into a um, an old high school acquaintance, uh, Mi. And they start connecting, reconnecting, and they start seeing uh, seeing each other. Then Hamey, um decides to uh, fly to to Africa, where she meets a very um, mysterious man named Ben, who's played by Steve Yeun from The Walking Dead. There's a lot of, I mean, yeah, there's some sort of some a love triangle element into it, but there's a lot of. I wouldn't exactly call this movie a crowd pleaser. First of all, it is a very long movie, and the grip on reality is not quite clear. So there are a lot of interesting fan theories about this movie online straight from does one of the character is one of the characters, you know, dead halfway through the film to, you know, did that particular character actually exist sort of things. But I I chose the dancing because it really is one of those. Well, first of all, the scene itself is loaded, loaded, loaded with uh, meaning. So in this scene, we're at a point where Ben and Haimi visit Jongsu at his parents' farmhouse, which is located close to the demilitarized zone, like the North Korean South Korean border, and and essentially they're um, they're smoking pot, and um, then Haimi decides to get up and do a very slow dance with Miles Davis playing. Earlier in the film, she's described a dance that she um, picked up while she was in Africa, which was like the Little Hunger dance, which was like the dance that you'd 
performing your hungry to the great hunger dance, which is the dance that you do. Like if you're trying to, if you're hungry for meaning, if you're trying to search for meaning and in this moment, she is doing this very long, great hunger dance, you know, searching for meaning in a way and in a, a moment of incredible danger as well. Um, location wise, that really does speak for itself. She's essentially dancing topless with North Korea in the background. And we're also at a point in the movie where the person that she's also, you know, sort of taken up another relationship with Ben is starting to show some very signs of being like being very sinister. Like every time she gets up and dances, he yawns as if like this is something that's, you know, boring or uninteresting to him. And it's immediately after this scene that he describes his love of burning greenhouses. So there's a sense of danger involved in this scene as well. And that this is sort of like, I almost see this as sort of like a last gasp of life or last gasp for, you know, in order to find this meaning for, uh, for Hamey. Because after the scene, or at least after she leaves, you know, the, the farm, we don't see her in the film again. And we don't, we're never given a clear explanation of what happens to her. I mean, you can tell, and by the way, great pick, Claire. I hadn't seen this, even though it's on Netflix. And I mean, how cool is that that we have a South Korean film on Netflix? You know, this isn't something that I saw advertised on Instagram or I heard my my dance students buzzing about. So it's good that we can, through streaming, we can get all these other international options. And I haven't seen a lot of South Korean films since I was in film school, which is obviously my bad. Um, so this was great to to see this one. And I love how this is like a capital F film. Like in the first few minutes, so much is established. And even the, this first scene um, or the first few scenes with the two main characters, like when they're on a date or they're going out for food and he, they're introducing the idea of pantomime, like right away, not dance literally, but just movement plays such an important role in this film and movement as a representation of the surreal or of the... Um, just the idea of illusion in particular, because pantomime is creating illusions in a way that, you know, other styles of movement or dance aren't necessarily prioritizing. And just the great hunger, little hunger, the way it's seated throughout the film is so satisfying. And I think that it beautifully culminates in this scene where you are seeing this backdrop, you know, a shirtless woman who has just uh, smoked and is dancing with North Korea in the backdrop and the South Korean flag waving. This is seems to be quite a, a, a big statement, you know, and movement is used in in this way as well to make that statement. I love that both of you, Jen, you just said like illusion. And then Clara, you're saying like, there's like these like conspiracy or not, not conspiracy, but these like theories of hacks online are saying like, maybe she is, she was an illusion all along. I mean, they, they're talking about like, the well is gone and this whole sequence of her dancing along it's like it's the camera barely leaves her until the very end of the shot so it's like that last like hurrah moment that you really focus in on who she is in the film and then it's gone forever and then it pans away and like floats away and I think the last like I did a paper on three iron uh, Park Chan-wook and that's like a ghost story. So I think like I was primed to watch this like 
And obviously, it's totally ignorant of me. Like, I've watched so few South Korean films that I'm connecting them, right? But I watched this one thinking, like, oh, that kind of feels very ghostly at the end of the scene. You know, her movement was already very floaty, super creepy, but definitely uh, piques, piques your interest and doesn't give you enough information to be like, oh, this is that was just... You can't even classify what you just saw because you're just like, okay, I guess I'm going to hold on to that and try and figure out the rest. (laughs) I mean, with all the films that we just talked about, I mean, these like kind of like dream sequences versus the reality. I mean, again, this like plays into that, that we're just, you know, saying again, it's kind of funny how we're seeing that repetition all throughout these films that we have picked today that we didn't even think that was something i mean obviously in the big lebowski sequence but it's kind of funny that these kind of these three pairings kind of go hand in hand together so if we're like watching dance as the content but there's something dancerly about the editing and about the camera movement like what do you what do you notice about i just find this scene is more artistic and more nuanced than oh you don't think that Romy and michelle is artistic <laughs> <laughs> no i was getting there i was getting there i was getting there i was gonna say Romeo and michelle's plays out like a dance film or like a screen dance the editing is perfect the shot type the the different perspectives and the coverage you get so not knocking that at all i'm just saying that one is obviously a dance number and the camera starts jumping around like it's a dance number. Whereas this one is more nuanced so that someone wouldn't look at it and be like, oh, the dance scene, you, you know, whereas Romy and Michelle, you know, it's a dance number. It happens like on a dance floor. And then gutter balls is like so literal that the choice of of where the camera goes and the shot types was more like, OK, what are we re- what are we referencing <laughs> versus what are we creating? <laughs> And by the way, Jeff Bridges was too wide to fit under their legs. So they had to like modify how they were going to shoot that scene, by the way. (laughs) So extra choreography there. Well, you know, as you're talking about burning and Murakami and stuff, you know, this is shifting me more into English lit mode and film stuff away from specific screen dance. But when you brought it back to Jeff Bridges and the Coen brothers, that scene in Big Lebowski, the gutter ball scene, and also I would say the scene in uh, Hudsucker Proxy, they have a dance scene in Hudsucker Proxy uh, that's set to like Carmen. That's Carmen, right? So there's this weird thing, and he's like running around chasing this woman and, you know, tying it back to burning. And I can only assume just because the Murakami thing, and I, I think it's loosely based on the Faulkner short story, Barn Burning, because the Murakami short story is called Barn Burning, so it's adding like this weird Southern identity thing into it. But I think what you're hitting on for Burning and for all of these is that dance sequences cannot just be used for dreamy purposes and to shift into that kind of enigmatic dream world thing, but it's the elusiveness of it the longing, but the inability to obtain it and thinking about burning and turning. And this is just spitballing. Like I say, this is English student BS, maybe uh, percolating up. But that shot, which I'd forgotten about, that she's in front of the, you know, the, the South Korean flags there and North Korea is in the distance. You know, if it's this pursuit of what does it mean? And the whole, the movie, my main takeaway from burning is just how like, 
weird it is and weird it feels. And you you feel like stuff's happening and it's meaning, but you feel very confused like the character does, trying to assemble it all together. And the mystery never fully gels. And it gives you all these breadcrumbs that don't ultimately lead you anywhere. And, you know, as a statement, if dance is either used for kind of the dream of harmony and the dream of grace and movement and unity of characters... When you put it in that context, in Burning, you're underscoring the inability to have the harmony of the national identity when there's this split, you know, between the two halves of the country and what that does for the identity and how you can understand what it means to be Korean if there are such, you know, oppositional understandings currently of what that means and the longing he has for the girl watching her dance and that she's there but he can't really touch her, can't commune with her. He does earlier in the movie. But now she's out of reach and he'll never get that kind of feeling of completion with her. And sex is very much a dance as well. So it's longing for that kind of dance and synchronicity, synchronization and grace uh, and unity that dance uh, points to. But it's denying the fulfillment of that. So I think that does, as I think Hannah was the one who pointed it out, that that does put it very much in that dreamlike state uh, opposed to the real world and what's really going on. And not just like the two countries. I mean, if you want to include just the movement that she's doing with the African style of like the big, the little hunger and the big hunger. I mean, it's like all of those worlds colliding all at once. And all of those, I mean, I it's all controversial kind of in the end, you know. You got freedom of speech. You got oppression. It's a lot of things. <laughs> Well, and the fact that it's a Miles Davis song and just jazz in general, it's kind of like uh, what Jen was saying about her husband and tap dance. Like, if you have the skill set and get jazz, you're getting it at a whole different level than people who can just get the gist and appreciate what it's doing without really being able to articulate why and what's going on. So I think it's the the music to which she chooses to dance is adding to that whole, like, what is this? Like, this is cool, but I don't really, that's my experience with most jazz anyway. It's like, yeah, I dig this, but I don't really have the tools like I do with any number of other musics to, you know, talk about what they're doing and, and why it works and why it's effective. So. Well, and I think jazz is a great representation of that great hunger. It's an experimental art form. It's something that, um, you know, it, it, embraces improvisation and individuality um so i think it's a great fit for this scene not just as a mood but even just if you think about what is what does jazz music represent and it's interesting that it's definitely not uh it's not south korean so they just picked what is something that uh given all the options available to us expresses the message we want to express and i actually wanted to um chime in on that because uh, circling it back to Murakami I think there was a great New York Times bingo card of like Murakami tropes that involved like you know cats people talking to cats disappearing cats jazz music and if you ever read a Murakami book there's always like some kind of moment of ennui where someone like puts on Ornette Coleman or someone puts on like you know some kind of jazz um jazz on the turntable and like this was one of the first times where I was like I feel like I'm you know this is the first time I feel like I'm watching this kind of vibe on screen or like this kind of like feeling of, you know, some kind of ennui on screen. 
And I think this film tries to get at that too. Like the film represents that great hunger. It's not just trying to show you a narrative. It's really trying to push these artistic boundaries. Um, It invites you to think on that level straight from the very beginning. Like even talking about pantomime and um, inviting you to have that suspension of disbelief basically and saying, you know, this can be real if you want it to be real or you can completely undo it with your mind. And I think that invites us to take even these more um, experimental moments with the dance to really investigate what is she trying to show? Because we see her do these movements with her hands, like, you know, showing the tangerine being peeled. But this is something a lot more abstract, but we're still invited to question it and take it very seriously. Yeah, I love the quote. Don't think there's a tangerine there. Just forget there isn't one. I love dance on screen. Uh, I don't understand how people couldn't because it's so inherently cinematic because, you know, cinema can play with space and movement and time in ways no other media can. And dance is uniquely suited to what cinema can do and vice versa. So I'm always happy to see a dance movie or a dance scene in a movie, whatever its genre. Totally. And this this conversation represents the desire to actually understand what it means instead of just do the popular thing of saying that's hilarious or that's ridiculous or that's just spectacle so thank you everyone for tuning in uh thank you everyone here for participating in this conversation and this will not be the last episode we do talking about dance scenes and movies so we do have an email reach out if there's something that you really want us to cover we definitely want to hear from you and Nathan, we want you back on the show for another yes. dance I'm, in, in this film is episode because, I mean, it's always one. I love talking to you, Nathan, and just, you know, Aww. it's always unpa- a great unpacking of uh, all of this kind of content um, just because, like, you know, at th- the three of us as dancers, I mean, we all grew up watching those kind of films. And I mean, like, it's not we didn't really know dance screen dance before anything and only dance in movies is like kind of like that gateway into making movies that are specifically only focused with the use of dance as a tool. So it's great talking about this and really diving into what the underbelly of the meaning of the dance in the movie itself. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Always happy to appear. And I have no shortage of theories and BS, some might say. (laughs) But like you say, with dance in general, some people are like, that's silly or that's cool. But, you know, it can be both. So always happy to discuss such things. Awesome. Thank you, Nathan, for appearing on the show again. And uh, yeah, if you want to check Nathan out, the links are in the show notes as well as all the other stuff on here. Oh, I'm on IMDb too. You can see movies I've worked on on IMDb. So sorry. That probably should have been first. Shows you how uh, active it is on my mind these days. But anyway, (laughs) thank you again for having me. I can't believe it, but this is like our second to last episode of the Frameform season. No! Gosh, I can't believe it. Like we actually did like pretty much a, no, we did a full season of episodes about dance film. Can you believe it? I I can't. I mean, I can't believe a lot of things that are happening in 2020, but I sure can't. Well, 
Well, actually, it's been a dream. Yeah, though. I mean, with I mean, now it's here. Both of you, but actually, I, yes, I can believe it because I, you know, you both are fantastic co-hosts, and you know, have Duh. really kept this, you know, keeping the ball rolling day in day out. It's, Thanks, Claire. I have really enjoyed working with you two. We we make a good team. I will say we make a good team. Yes, yes, we do. But you know. It's not just us as a team. It's also the listeners, you all in your headphones, speakers, cars, wherever you're listening. I mean, you also helped us get to the place that we are today. And we want to thank you for being a part of this. But with all this said, I we would love to hear from you. And we have our email account just waiting for you, Frameform podcast frameform podcast at gmail.com we want to hear what you thought about season one we would love a comment card from y'all yeah our next step is um celebrating a little that season one is done (laughs) and thinking about what we're going to talk about next season so if there's something that we covered um like one of our topic series or um, a particular film you want to talk about or if you're like, hey, I would be a really cool person to interview or I'd be a really cool guest. Please reach out to us and make sure you go back and check out the other episodes. They're all on our website, www.rixie.com slash frameform and on Instagram at frameformpod. Subscribe, review, share, spread the love. Watch the links in the show notes. We are a one-stop shop for both listening and viewing pleasure. So, yes. And really, please share to your friends. I mean, the only way to make this podcast even bigger and better is sharing it to a friend and rating and reviewing it. Because you know what? If you're not a dance film watcher now, doesn't mean you're never going to be one. So thank you all so, so much for listening with us this year. And tune in next Wednesday for our final episode of... Frameform. Frameform is a production of Rixie, hosted by me, Hannah Weber, Claire Schweitzer, and Jen Ray. Edited and mixed by myself and Mason Carlton. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.